Section 9 of By the Marshes of Minus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. By the Marshes of Minus by Sir Charles G. D. Roberts. La Mouche, Part 1. The autumn sky was clear along the blue top of Blomidon. The autumn sunlight settled in yellow haze on the wide, low-lying meadows and comfortable slopes of Grand Pre. The barns were overflowing from a rich harvest. The orchards were red with apples. But a heavy sorrow lay like night upon the village, and not a heart therein but was washed with tears. With dull and reddened eyes the women went about their work. All day long no laughter was heard but that of the young children. It was the year of the great exile. The men of Grand Pre were under lock and guard in the village chapel. Their long, stubborn refusal to take the oath of allegiance to England, though Nova Scotia had become an English colony, had at last borne its inevitable fruit. Since they would not turn their eyes away from the France which had deserted them, the decree of banishment had been reluctantly spoken against them. To the chapel... Colonel Winslow had summoned them all to hear a royal proclamation, and that proclamation had declared to them their fate. The soldiers at the doors had held them captive. The sails of the ships that should take them into exile were already drawing near. Food for the sad-faced prisoners in the chapel was brought daily by the women and children. Mothers, wives, daughters, sisters, and sons so young that their long locks had not yet fallen under the shears, jostled each other at the chapel door, and girls, whose lovers were within, came eagerly and went away not daring to tell their errands. Of the men, some lounged heavily about the familiar building and wondered in dull misery if these walls, now grown so hateful, were the same which had watched benignantly over their baptism their first communion, and their marriage. Others of the prisoners crowded the window spaces and gazed longingly across the deer fields, which they never again should till, turning up the long black furrow behind their slow-paced oxen. Others again there were who wept and prayed in the darkest corners of the chapel. But not quite all the men of Grand Pre Village were thus captive. There were several of the Acadian farmers who had long ago been politic enough to take the oath of allegiance to King George, and honest enough to adhere to it, in spite of all threat and persuasion. These were treated with marked favor by the British authorities. Among them was Pierre Mallard, a prosperous old habitant, whose farm lay around the bend of the hill from Grand Pre, just in the mouth of the Gasparo Valley. Here, with his industrious and bright-eyed old wife and his willful daughter, Celeste, he cultivated his flax and potatoes and kept his mind at ease. Without alarm, he had obeyed the call of the New England colonel, and from the chapel prison he had been released with many flattering compliments upon his loyalty. But the old man's heart was heavy for his countrymen. There was one, however, whose absence from the chapel prison was much marked, but who surely owed his freedom to no English favor. Baptiste Perrault, 
that in known by the nickname of La Mouche, was wanted by the English authorities. He was their most daring and restless opponent among the Acadians. The names of France, Quebec, Louisbourg were ceaselessly on his lips. He was deep in the councils of Lagarne, the Black Abbey, a bold hunter, a skilled bushranger. He carried to Louisbourg information of the English plans, and from Louisbourg he brought messages of menace or exhortation to keep the Acadians mindful of their old flag. When Labouche who had his usual headquarters at Grand Pre, heard of the English proclamation, he smiled and went warily. When he saw his fellow villagers bound for the chapel, he discreetly set his face toward the forest and dim ravines that guarded the upper valley of the Gasparo. And Winslow's New England musketeers sought him in vain. His woodcraft made derision of their clumsy search. One evening... When the search had long been dropped, and Grand Prix's sorrow had wept itself into silence, and already one shipload of exiles had vanished over the wild tides of Minas, Celeste Millard was driving her cows to pasture after the milking. In a thicket beside the path came a light rustle, and Lamouche stood before her. Batiste, exclaimed the girl in a tone of mingled pleasure and reserve. Then she glanced about her in apprehension. Don't be alarmed, Celeste, said Lamouche, stepping to her side. You may be sure I saw that there were no enemies in sight before I showed myself. The girl made no reply, and the man eagerly scanned her face as he walked beside her. He was thrilled by the note of pleasure he had caught in her quick utterance, and his eyes had a confident light. You were then... A little bit alarmed on my account, lest the English should get hold of me, were you not, Celeste? He continued, craving to hear again that kindness in the girl's voice. It was a blundering speech. The swarthy and lean-faced woodsman was an unpractised lover. Far less knew he of women than of lynx and moose and panther. And in presence of Celeste, his wanted subtlety failed him. The reserve in the girl's face deepened. The cordiality faded out. Turning her head so that she could look her companion calmly in the eyes, she said, Certainly, Baptiste, I was anxious and afraid, as I would have been for any other of our countrymen in danger of being captured by the English. I have been glad because of your escape, and I have been glad, so glad, because of Laroque's escape. But, oh... Mon dear, she continued, her voice changing and her eyes wandering with sudden forgetfulness from the face of Lamouche. Because of those who have not escaped, my eyes will never more be dry. To this Lamouche made no answer. His heart, too, was sore with grief and wrath. For he loved his countrymen and he hated all the enemies of France. But at this moment he had room for no emotion except his hungry love for the girl beside him. His heart throbbed in his throat, and he could find no words. In silence, the two walked on, and the chilly autumn dusk gathered thicker around them. Presently, they reached the pasture bars. Instead of lowering them for the girl to pass out, the moosh turned around, leaned against them, and what he was burning to say trembled upon his lips. But Celeste met his gaze so quietly that he was disconcerted 
and hurriedly substituted other words. Your father, said he, he is safe, of course. The English will do no harm to him. They are kind to all my father's house, replied Celeste. But Lamouche had again found his voice, with his eyes fixed upon a piece of rough bark, which he had peeled from the top bar, and was now tearing into bits, he began hoarsely. Celeste, I must ask you something. No, no, don't speak till you have heard me. I cannot keep back my question for a happier time. I must ask you now because all my future hangs on your answer. I aim at the crossroads, and you will decide which way I turn. When I heard the kindness in your voice a few minutes ago, I thought you loved me, and in my joy I spoke foolishly. Forgive me, Celeste, if now you say you do not love me, if you say you cannot and will not learn to love me. Then this night I leave this land, my fatherland, forever. I know that never again will the lilies of France float over my Acadie. For the English have set their teeth into her side, and they will not let go. If your heart is set against me, Celeste, I will go to Louisbourg and fall fighting. I pray in that great war which my heart hears drawing nigh. In the loneliness and silence of my hiding place, Celeste, I have seen things clearly which I did not understand before. I have seen the end of this long strife. I have seen the lions trample the lilies. I have seen the mighty walls of Louisbourg leveled before the English guns, and I have seen the sheep pasturing over her grass-grown ramparts. My part is with this ruin, but one word from you would make it all different for me, Celeste. Your people are now to become English. For your sake, I will tear up my heart and make it all over to call itself English, too. If you will but let me hope a little... I will give in my submission to the governor at Halifax and take the oath of allegiance to the English king and turn my eyes away from all the past. They will accept my oath even at this late day because they would rather win Lamouche for a friend than punish him as an enemy. And they know that I keep my word. Celeste, may I go to the English governor? As he concluded, Lamouche leaned forward as if to take the girl's hand. Celeste had heard him quietly, but upon this movement she drew back with almost harsh abruptness. At another time she would have been filled with pity, and she would have remembered with pride that Lamouche was one whose love greatly distinguished her above the other maidens of Grand Pre. But just now she was thinking of a sad-eyed lad among the prisoners in the chapel. She thought of tall, young jewels, soon to sail into exile, and never again to know the comforts of her hands. On the very night before the captivity, she had given him the promise he pled for, her heart filled with a sudden wild bitterness against Lamouche. Why was he here, free, full of life and strength, and offering her a love she did not want, while Jules was a hopeless captive? She turned away angrily, saying in a hard voice, Do not on my account rob France of your services, Baptiste, for I shall never have anything to give you in return. The undeserved sarcasm in her tone cut Lamouche to the quick, and his keen face flushed darkly. Twice he tried to speak, but speech died on his lips. Then he turned, 
lowered the bars and let Celeste pass through. After walking beside her in silence for a few moments, he said gently, From the scorn with which you have treated my poor offer, Celeste, I may gather that someone more fortunate has been before me. The phrase, more fortunate, was fuel to the girl's bitterness. She cried sharply, It is more fortunate than to be dragged captive among strangers and never to see one's land and people again. I might think so, Celeste, he answered in a low voice, but in an instant his brow knit and his voice changed. Scanning the girl's face, he went on with slow emphasis. I think I remember a certain long-legged, lamb-faced weanling called Jules. I forget his other name, if he had one, who used to hang about wherever Mademoiselle Celeste Ballard might chance to be and blush if one spoke to him suddenly. He seemed, as I remember, to have much concern about his arms and legs. I see from Mademoiselle's face that I have guessed rightly. Here the slow words began to cut like steel. Indeed, I feel myself much honored by so distinguished a rival. The girl stopped short, as if she had been stung, and faced her companion. Even through the dusk he could see the blazing wrath of her eyes. Coward, she said in a trembling whisper, scarcely able to control her breath. Young as he is, and with neither blood on his hands nor stain in his heart, you would never dare speak that way to his face. Go, go, lest I call the English soldiers. But Lamouche did not go. He laughed coolly. Doubtless, said he, his mother's milk is by this time quite dry upon his lips, and his mighty sinews, his practiced weapons, would make short work of me. Go, go, repeated Celeste desperately, and the next instant she was speeding up the path. Wait, commanded Lamouche, and to her own astonishment Celeste found herself pausing in her flight and listening, with sudden, wild apprehension for what the wood ranger would say next. I will go, as you wish, and his voice conveyed to her soul a nameless threat, but not to Louisburg. Since the boy has dared to become my rival, I must honor him as such, and make him realize what a responsibility he has assumed. Do not think, Celeste, that Lamouche has lost his power, or that I cannot reach the lamb-faced youth in his prison behind the English guards. Moreover, his heart is yours, and you shall have it. I will send it to you. My honor will not permit me to let the English keep what is yours. A wavering gray figure in the gloom, pausing on tiptoe, as if for instant flight, Celeste had listened. At this menace of Lamouche, all her pride gave way. Her heart stood still with fear for her young lover. Like a cold wave, swept over her the remembrance of Lamouche's relentless will, his matchless cunning, his patience in pursuit of his aim. She flew with a sob to throw herself at his feet and implore his pity for Jules. But in the same instant, he was gone, noiselessly and swiftly as a ghost, he had vanished. The dusky thickets had swallowed him. She heard not a sound but the rough tinkle-tangle of the cowbells. She threw herself down on the cold moss of a hillock and wept and besought the Blessed Virgin to guard jewels. And during the long days that followed, before the next ship was to sail, 
her sorrow was mixed with the ceaseless anguish of fear. End of section 9